Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. For the last few weeks, I've mostly wanted to talk to one person, but he's very busy, lives nowhere near me, and is in extremely high demand. So I had to wait. His name is Michael Osterholm, and he's the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota, which up till this spring probably didn't land him on the list of America's most important celebrities, but it does now. Osterholm has stood apart from other experts from the beginning. While there's been lots of talk about what level of testing we need to get to or how to contain the virus, Osterholm has said there's a reality we have to grapple with, a reality that the lockdowns we've seen, they won't end the virus, nor will tests or contact tracing. This is a virus, Osterholm says, that's probably going to be with us for years. He's tired of what he calls happy talk, the notion that choices are easier, solutions are just around the corner. The virus is likely going to infect a majority of us, he says, and there's very little we can do about it, without, of course, causing society to collapse in profound ways. Over the last few weeks, I've made mental notes about questions for Osterholm, but when I talked to him this week, I started to realize some of the answers I was looking for are tougher to wrestle with. Than I had hoped. We're in the second inning of a nine-inning situation where only 5 to 20 percent of the U.S. population has yet been infected by this virus, most of it in the 5 percent area mm. of uh, the country. And uh, this virus is not going to slow down its attempt to infect humans until we get to at least 60 or 70 percent of, of the public infected or have a vaccine that can also achieve some level of immunity at that level. And so I think that uh, as much as we must keep focused on the moment and understand how we uh, bring both the disease and how we live with it and die with it in some kind of context, we also have to understand we have got a long ways to go and we need plans for how we're going to do that because some of what's before us is going to be a lot worse than what we've already had. When you look around the world, uh, is there a country, are there countries that you think that that's that's the way to approach this right there. I, I like what they're doing. Well, you know, each country is different in terms of its size of its population, its geographic isolation, uh, its ability to uh, take on certain public measures that other countries they couldn't do, such as orders to stay in your home for weeks at a time. Um, and so I think that no one has the ideal situation. We keep hearing about that, um, you know, Recently, we've talked about how Korea has done this so well, and then now only to see outbreaks occurring uncontrolled within nightclubs and within the in the city. Right. Um, each country, I think, uh, is vulnerable to this virus today in a way that it wasn't yesterday. So even if a conclusion has been raised that says, oh, boy, they did it well, you know, just wait a couple of weeks and see what happens. And so I think that, that what we have to understand is this virus is acting in a very principled way, and that principle is viral gravity. It's just like physical gravity. It's going to keep going, doing what it's doing. And if there's a leak anywhere in the system, it will find that leak like water in a bucket. And I think we're going to continue to see country after country uh, come up with new challenges. And so there isn't one country that just has it down right. So I'm guessing when you say, like, it tries to find its way, you know, out, like any leak in the bucket... I'm guessing the country that says, that's okay, we're going to plug all the leaks, you would say, 
mm, that's that's going to be harder to do than you think. Yeah. That's not a strategy. That's not a strategy. To me, um, saying that you're going to stop all leaks is like saying you're going to fix three of the five screen doors in your submarine and think you're okay. Um, I think what we have to do is figure out how do we live with this virus as well as how do we deal with the sick and the dying with this virus. And um, it is going to be a challenge. Uh, and one of the challenges we have is how is it going to present itself to us as a society. One of the things that, uh, in a recent paper that we published on scenarios, how do we get from that 5 to 20% to 60 to 70%, we've laid right. out, well, what if it's like influenza and flu pandemics of past? We would expect to see cases actually start to tail off right now after this initial first wave of cases and then come back with a vengeance uh, in three or four months. Um, if that were the case, that would be a devastating uh, event in human history, um, much worse than we've seen in New York, and it would be much more geographically uh, occurring throughout the world. Uh, on the other hand, if it's a slow burn because it's a coronavirus, not a flu virus, and somehow it just continues and continues and continues, that's another manageable uh, approach that where we can do things that we couldn't with a big peak. So I think we're all waiting right now to see where this is going to go, knowing that if it's a big peak, there's only a limited amount of what we can do about that. If it's something that just is in the slow burn phase, then we can start to look at how we as humans can interact with that virus in a different way. So we're really at this point in a in a quandary as to what's going to happen, and that's that's a huge issue. So if a governor, if the White House came to you and said, listen, we understand what you're saying, we are listening to you, you know, we understand that this is a virus that is going to look to transmit from person to person, and it's really not going to stop until it somehow hits a wall, like either a lot of people have been vaccinated or a lot of people have just already gotten this virus and there's just there's nowhere for it to go, essentially. So we hear that. Then what should we do to deal with, as you say, this issue of both how to live with this virus and how to die with it? What's the what's the best way to get through the next year or two? Well, I think, first of all, just recognizing and and in a sense, affirming that we can't lock ourselves down for 18 or more months if we should get a vaccine. Uh, in a way that would meaningfully stop the transmission of this virus, that would stop society as we know it, which by its very self would basically destroy our livelihoods. Not, I'm not talking even just economic. I'm talking about just who we are as a, a modern society. Um, the number of people that would be adversely impacted uh, without work, uh, the number of people from a hunger standpoint, lack of food, etc., it would be substantial. On the other hand, we can't just walk away from this and say, well, let it go. Because if we did that and cases were to just occur to get to that 60 or 70 percent would literally bring down healthcare systems, uh, not just for patients with COVID-19, but also heart attack victims, stroke victims, anyone who needed medical care. And then on top of it, we'd be putting our healthcare workers right in the bullseye. They would suffer immeasurably because we did not have enough protective equipment for them. And so I think those two extremes we just have to agree quickly to that we can't accept. So then it's what I call threading the rope through the needle. What we have to figure out is, okay, there may be as high as 40% or more of our population who are at increased risk of having a serious outcome with this virus, needing intensive care medicine and dying. Well, how do we handle those cases in terms of preventing them from getting infected in the first place? And what does that mean? 
What does sheltering in place mean? You know, we're finding that we're seeing more and more individuals who are hospitalized uh, with uh, COVID-19 who say, well, but I, I never left my apartment. And that was true. But what they didn't tell you at the time was that they, but they had family come over all the time. Mm-hmm. And in their mind, that was sheltering in place. And I understand that. So what we're trying to figure out is, okay, so how do we better craft our messages? How do we support these families? Uh, what if you have no one else to get your groceries or you have no one else to, to help you with things that you need, getting medications? And so we need to really have a, a very, uh, I would say, a, a rapid discussion because we don't have a lot of time to do this, but how can we better protect people in our society that are at risk? And then how do we open up the society for those who are at much lower risk of having a, a severe illness. In fact, they may very well have nothing more than inconvenient uh, sniffles. What do we do there? We're not having that discussion. Okay. We're not having that plan put out there, and that's what we need desperately right now. Okay. Who to you is in that group that is at risk, the, the, the more of the stay-at-home group? Well, first of all, older age by itself is a risk factor. Uh, over age uh, uh, 70 to 80 clearly puts you at increased risk. We know that people who have underlying heart disease, who have kidney disease, people who have had certain blood cancers or have had lung cancers, and uh, people who are, have hypertension, uh, these are all the people that uh, we have to look at. Diabetes, uh, another one. Uh, and, and the one that I think is the most difficult one in many ways because it's one that most people won't talk about is obesity. We have an epidemic of obesity in the United States. And uh, in even looking at individuals under age 50, we do see an increased occurrence of severe illness and even deaths in people who have severe, uh, and even in some cases, moderate obesity. So that comes to play in terms of how do we uh, look at that. And then finally, one that uh, none of us quite know how to actually deal with, but is being a male male puts you at a substantial higher risk than being a female. And there are some potential reasons why that might be the case, but we just have to know being an older, heavy man with underlying heart disease is not a good place to be right now with respect to this pandemic. Okay. So I want to try to talk about this idea of threading the needle, but you just laid out, all right, who is at high risk? Do you say to those people, I'm just going to not include men because at a certain point you get to a lot, a lot, a lot of people. Um, but if you do you say to people who are over 70, who have those, you know, the history of those cancers and heart disease and kidney disease that you just talked about, do you say to those people, we really think you should stay home and not see family, what, until we get a vaccine, like for a couple of years? This is the very hard part about uh, this pandemic is saying to people like that, you put yourself at risk of having a very serious illness and dying if you get infected. The way you get infected is being in contact with people who have the virus. And even if you're staying at home, you still will put yourself at risk if you have people there. So the question becomes, how do you do that most safely? If you have a situation where you have family members who themselves are limiting their contact with others, then how do you work that out? Do you, do you get together on front lawns and back porches where you keep some distance, etc.? And, you know, we don't have the answers to that yet, but this is exactly what we need to start doing. How do you have family contact with this? I'm at the forefront of this. I have not seen my five grandchildren in person since March 10th. 
all I do is on, on, on FaceTime and Zoom. You know, that's great to do that, but it's horrible. I miss it desperately. So I'm at the forefront. I get it. But the chance is that I, as an older man in his late 60s, is someone who's at risk. And so I think to myself, now, what do I take for responsibility? What do I say? Well, I don't care. You know, I, this means too much to me. And then I have to think about what does this, you know, as we see more of these illnesses in the general population, what will I do? So this is not an easy answer, but it's one that we've got to start having this discussion. And I've been having it with my own family. So what we need that is a national dialogue on that and say, you know, why should we sequester everyone if, in fact, mo- many people will not be at high risk for this disease of, uh, in terms of severe illness or death? And, and right now, we're not having that discussion. We have everything's like a light switch. It's on or off. It's not a real stat where, you know, some cases a little darker, some cases a little lighter. That's what we need to do. Let me just follow up on, on, on your situation. Do you think that it will be, let's say there is no vaccine or good therapeutic for two years. I'm sure you've thought about that possibility. And that's not like crazy because uh, my understanding is the fastest vaccine developed was for the mumps and that was developed in four years. Um, do you think, okay, well, that's okay. I just will not see these grandkids for two years. You know, we are struggling right now with how to first admit that we don't have the answers for this. Second of all, how do we talk about it? How do we internalize it? You know, one of the things I think that we're not acknowledging right now, every one of us, particularly those that may be at higher risk, are wondering, is today the day I'm going to get infected? Is today the day that my life is going to forever change? And, you know, the psychology of that just weighs on all of us. And, you know, people talk about this idea of distancing fatigue. I just got to get out, whatever. You know what else is weighing on people's minds is the fact is today the day I'm going to get infected. Now, if I'm living in some rural area where I don't even know anybody who's had this, I don't have any friends with it, whatever, you're going to have one way of looking at that. But like myself, who has had friends who have died from this, who have been severely ill with this, I have a different one. And, and so I think that one of the things we're not doing is recognizing the collective national and international psyche around this to say, it's okay to be scared. It's okay to be uncomfortable, but that's not acceptable as the final answer. The answer has to be, how are you going to move on with your life? How are you going to deal with it? And I think, you know, asking myself the question, how do I do with my own grandchildren? How do I deal with my own children? Um, is a very real and important issue. And imagine adding all those millions of similar relationships up into an answer. What are we going to do? But the bottom line is of avoiding that discussion is not going to get us to the next step we have to be at to deal with this virus uh, in the most effective way. Let's pause here for just a minute. I'm talking with Michael Osterholm. He's the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. He's also a member of the National Academy of Medicine. If you want to hear our entire conversation, it's on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find this conversation at innovationhub.org. From WGBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. On May 12th, a Tuesday, 
Dr. Anthony Fauci, head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, warned that states reopening too early could cause unnecessary deaths. Meanwhile, that same day, reports out of Germany, which had been praised as being on the forefront of pandemic management, they indicated the virus was spreading much faster than Germans had thought. The same was happening in Singapore and South Korea, which had been models of testing and tracing. But hadn't those countries gotten things under control when America couldn't? Didn't they stamp this thing out? Well, not really, according to Michael Osterholm, who's one of the country's leading experts on infectious diseases. Osterholm is the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. And he says, just as the Singapore-South Korea model is not a magic bullet, neither is the Sweden model, the idea of letting the disease circulate as it wants to through the population, except among vulnerable groups who stay at home. The epidemiologist who created Sweden's strategy says he thinks waiting for a vaccine just doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not something you can bank on, which is true. So he hopes to build up herd immunity by having a lot of the population get infected and develop antibodies. In fact, he thinks 40% of Stockholm residents will be immune by the end of May. Osterholm isn't convinced. I've had an opportunity to look at some of the data from Sweden in terms of antibody studies. And they're not any yeah. farther along, quote unquote, getting closer to uh, herd immunity than they are in the United States in most instances. And everyone made it sound like they were just around the corner. Second of all, they took a heavy loss in the older population, particularly in their long-term care area. And to some people that was uh, acceptable, but I think most people didn't find it acceptable. And they've got a long ways to go yet uh, in terms of getting to that concept of herd immunity. So I always uh, urge people to be cautious about taking the prevailing message of the day. I hear this over and over again. You know, well, if we just be like that country or that country or that country, only to have it change. You know, I, uh, I was at a meeting uh, a month and a half ago where somebody just said, if we just did it like Singapore, we would be in, in great shape. And it was actually that morning that they had just declared an, a national emergency. And that person wasn't aware of it when they made the comment. And uh, I thought, huh, my, just how quickly things can change. So, so I think the point that you made is a very important one, that this virus is going to continue to infect people. It's going to try to infect people. And we have to be very humble about when we say a national plan has worked. It's worked maybe in a way to a certain degree to that point, but it is no guarantee what it'll do tomorrow. Well, so you do see, obviously, we have a very patchwork plan in the U.S. Every state, every governor is kind of playing this differently. You do see a number of governors saying, well, I don't want to reopen. You're going to stay in lockdown. We're basically going to not reopen until we have enough testing in place. We have enough contact tracing. Now, I mean, testing somebody is not going to make them not contract the virus, but I guess they're thinking we need a certain level of security around this. When you hear that, do you think that is right? That is the way to approach it? Or do you think that doesn't make any sense? Well, first of all, again, we have to face reality. Uh, a month ago, we had a set of criteria that were established about how to reopen, you know, 14 days of decreasing new cases where we were testing the, the population right. of ill people. 
um, that we had adequate protective equipment for our healthcare workers in place and that if surge could be handled within a healthcare system in a given area uh, in terms of suddenly we did see increases. All those went out the window. Have you seen any state that actually match up with those? And yet we see up to half of all the states in a reopen mode. And so what was at one time some criteria we were using to move forward became inconvenient uh, in terms of trying to reopen the economy. All of us understand the economy is critical. I have friends who are have been tremendously adversely affected by this situation, one who's likely to lose his business of 20 years. Um, it's painful. It's hard. Uh, but at the same time, you can't neglect the truth of what the virus does or doesn't do. And so I'm sitting here looking at if you're going to change the criteria upon which you're going to open or reopen, that's okay. Go ahead. You know, you can do that. But just be clear with the public. Just have straight talk and say, why did you change it? What are the new criteria you're going to use? And for one I use right now is one, are cases increasing or decreasing in a population that the testing is standard, meaning we've been doing it the same way for weeks. So the numbers are not affected by just a new sample of people. Okay. The second thing is, are we protecting our healthcare workers? Do we have enough protective equipment? I see states opening up right now to same-day surgeries where we're obviously going to be using additional protective equipment for those healthcare workers, which is important. I don't want to minimize it, but I also know that there are healthcare workers working in COVID units that don't have enough protective equipment. That is just not right. That's wrong. And so I think that what we have to do is have a plan that, that we all agree to. And then if you're not going to follow it, at least have an explanation to the public why. And right now, I think the reopening is a hodgepodge of just wanting to get by this, believing that if we just get into the summer, everything will go away, the business will start to come back, and they don't have a sense where we're going. Last piece, how do we reestablish the lockdown slash physical distancing, um, you know, business closures in the future. Right now, uh, if you're going to ring a bell, you better have a way to unring it. And I don't see anybody right now elaborating on, well, what happens if cases go up fourfold in a two-week period? Will we reestablish these uh, measures that we've had in place? And again, I'm not advocating what you do or don't do, other than you got to have criteria so that the public knows. The public just wants straight talk. They just want to know what's going on and why. And we're not giving them that. And that, I think, is creating a lack of confidence, not whether this is a bad bug or whether it's going to do a lot of damage, but how are we responding to it? So to me, that's that's the challenge we have right now is just honest, straight talk with the public about what we're doing, why we're doing it, how we're deciding, and what will dictate our future decision-making. Well, so if a governor came to you and said, the, the White House a while back said 14 days of declining cases, is that it? Michael Osterholm, is that the way to move forward here? If it, once we check that box, we should start reopening? No, I've actually added several additional components to that. One is that the case is decreasing. Number two is if you had a sudden surge in number of severe cases, 25 or 30 percent, your healthcare system is prepared to handle that. Okay. And number three is our healthcare workers who are working with these patients have access to adequate protective equipment. If they don't, then that's a, a game changer. 
If we don't have surge capacity in our intensive care areas in the hospitals, that's a game changer. If we don't see the decreasing uh, incidence of disease, that's a game changer. And okay. I would stick with that, even though right now those three criteria are not meaning very much to many people. And would you stick with 14 days? Does it matter whether it's four days, 10 days, 20 days? I mean, 14 days is clearly arbitrary, but if you're in the world of epidemiology, we've seen too many peaks up and down and, you know, somebody declares victory after two days of downward trends only to see day six, seven, and eight, the highest numbers they'd ever had. So I, if you look at the case numbers, I think we can safely say that you have a much higher likelihood of you're really on a downward trend after 14 days, but it takes that long. Otherwise, you just have the natural variation in ups and downs. Now, my understanding from what you're saying is, okay, the case has declined for 14 days in, the, in this pretend state. You let people out. They're going to go back up. Is there any question about that? I think you're absolutely right. They're going to go back up. And that's why I just made the point about then we have to figure out, well, when do we reestablish these measures? Do we? How do we? And, and again, that's a very critical discussion that's not being had. You know, not just how do we release people back into society as as we all would like, but then what is it about this disease, its occurrence in the population, what it's doing to people? How do we then reestablish, if we decide to, that uh, uh, we need to put new measures in place? I've already stated clearly that I don't think uncontrolled uh, transmission in our society is is an acceptable option. We will bring down healthcare systems. Mm. We will, in fact, uh, cause lots of people to die, not just from COVID-19, but people who won't have access to the care they need when they mm. have their heart attack or mm. when they have their stroke. Um, and so we, we can't let it go willy-nilly, but I don't see any measure right now in this country to effectively deal with what's our next step when cases go back up and how do we make that decision. We're going to pause this conversation again. I'm Kara Miller talking with Dr. Michael Osterholm. He's the head of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. When we come back, how to deal with rising unemployment, rising hunger, and sending kids back to school. At our website, you can sign up for our newsletter where you can see what we're reading and what we've got coming up on the show. That's at innovationhub.org. From WGBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Earlier this month, polling showed that more families with young children were struggling with hunger. 40% of moms with kids under 12 reported their family couldn't get enough to eat because there just was not enough money. In 2018, that number was much smaller, not 40% like now, but 15%. But over the last few months, there's been a surge in hunger and in food insecurity. So how do you balance several public health crises that are occurring at the same time? Michael Osterholm has been thinking about pandemics and about how to handle them for decades. In 2008, he was appointed to the World Economic Forum's Working Group on Pandemics. His day job is running the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. And he says, the reality of a pandemic is painful. 
The virus will keep going. It will not stop until either we have built up immunity as a population or until a vaccine is found, which could be years away. In the meantime, if you lock things down, yes, we can slow the virus and save lives. But if you lock things down, millions will suffer in other ways. And that is threading the rope through the needle that I talked about. That is an absolutely legitimate concern. I worry about suicides, mental illness, depression, people who are in a position where just the mere fact of the isolation, the loneliness, and no one's reaching out to them, the desperation of losing a business, uh, of not working, these are all absolutely part of this whole equation that we have to bring together and say, what can we do to avoid those and at the same time minimize the virus transmission? Remember, this is not an either or. Both of these are going to occur. What we have to do is figure out how to balance them. And the most important thing right now is just having the, that discussion and make it a legitimate discussion. When you have leaders continuing to tell you this is going to go away in just a couple of months and it won't be a problem anymore, there is no reason to have that discussion. People like me are just, you know, scaremongers. That's all. And I know that that's going to happen. And so I think that part of it is we're, we're, we're trying to find ways to have this discussion where people believe it, participate in it, and say, what are we going to do about it? And that's what we're not having right now. Well, do you think that there are tactics that you have that are not being adopted? I, I think I heard you say quite a, a while back, you know, have people in their 20s go back and then people in their 30s. And then people I think you said something like that. Are there tactics that do thread this needle of I mean, we've just seen I mean, just this incredibly massive layoffs, which, of course, is is what's leading to people not being able to feed their young children. Um, are there ways to thread that needle for a long time, six months, a year, 18 months, two years, um, and not on one hand have society fall apart and not on the other hand have just such an, a huge number of COVID-19 cases that either the healthcare system breaks or something else terrible, you know, just a, a sort of terrible outcome on that front. You know, we have to understand we're in a war with this virus. It's a war. War is never good. War is never okay in the sense that everything will be fine. There will be people who will suffer. There will be people who will die. What our job is is to find the very best balance we can to limiting the number of people who will be impacted by this virus and who will die because of it. And that is going to continue to change as we see more and more people across America infected, for that matter, across the world. Uh, you know, this this idea that it's just old people in long-term care facilities or it's prisoners or it's people who work in meat processing plants. Those are all aggregate areas of either living or working where all it took was one infected person out of a community. You could have right. one out of every right. 200. Once it got into those areas, it was like a match in a gas cam and blew up. When people start to see that those are not the future faces of severe illness and dying, that will bring a new reality. I think then it's going to start being our family and friends, our colleagues that will be. What we have to do is have a, a what I would consider, again, is a safe place to have this discussion of how we're going to get through this war. And so we have to stop us promising people everything will be okay, because that's not going to be the case. It's not going to be. 
Second of all, but how do we get through it? And I have said time and time again, this is where the leadership that we need, and it's not a partisan leadership statement, we need an FDR fireside chat approach. We need a Winston Churchill who will be honest and say, these are the challenges we have. How do we make sure that kids get enough food at the same time, not cause people to suddenly become ill and severely ill with this and overwhelm hospitals? And right now, that discussion's not happening. That's the first step. You, it's, it's like the stages of death and dying. You know, until you go through that initial denial and deal with it, you can't move on. We need to have this urgent discussion right now. This is a long-term proposition. We're at war. It's not going to be pretty. We cannot make it okay for everybody. So how are we going to make the hard decisions? And we need leadership that can bring us through that discussion and hold us together. That's what, if I had any magic wand right now besides one for a vaccine, that's the magic wand that I would try so hard to make happen. Yes, but if a governor said to you, you know, I think you understand this better than almost anybody out there. Help me to know, I understand it's war, I understand people are going to die, but help me to understand what I should do in my state. Do I do I keep second graders home till they're in fourth grade and just have them go to school on Zoom for two years? Is that what, and they don't have playdates and they don't see other children? Is that is that what we're really look like? Is that for reality what we're looking at, or do I let them go and say, you know, I mean, they're gonna spread things, but that's okay because they're the future, and I think we should educate them. I mean, what what do you do? See, you know what the very question that you're asking me is the question you're not asking me, you're asking yourself. And we're all asking that same question. But you know what? We don't do it publicly. And so I agree with you. I think schools should be on the table. I think that uh, how we protect people who are service workers should be on the table. Um, I, I believe that all of these issues are up for not only discussion, but hard decisions. And when you I say think, sorry, when you say schools on the table, do you mean you think it's possible we should keep kids home for a couple of years or no? No, I'm thinking that that we should consider reopening our schools. Okay. I've told I've been advising a series of college presidents yeah. around the country about what to do in the fall. And I've said, you know what? You have to plan as if we're going to be in school. OK. And then have contingency plans if for some reason we can't be, meaning that if we find that suddenly we're in the middle of a big peak or whatever. We will have to then come up with creative ways. For example, do block semesters where you take one course intensively for two weeks. And so if something comes up and suddenly interrupts the semester, you just it's not all lost. You know, be creative. It's not just distance learning. This is where I think as a society we need to have that kind of discussion. But I mean, think about this right now. I just got done laying out how the governors have not used any of the criteria they set up for reopening. And the public is so confused now. What? Why are we reopening? Why are we not? Now imagine if we did that with schools, where suddenly we said, well, we're going to go back to school. But I don't know why, from why last spring we weren't, or why we'll close down in the future. That's where we have to have that plan where we say, we'll reopen schools, and this is what we'll do if, in fact, we see an increase in transmission that we believe is related to schools or kids, whatever. And until you have that acknowledgement that you need that, you're not going to have a plan. That's the whole point of it is. So I think that that's where, if we could do anything right now, 
is really, we have to prick this boil of hard questions, hard answers, and then that's when we're going to be able to develop these plans. If I came out with a plan today, say open schools or don't open schools, or, you know, basically have everybody go back to work under age 30, they would be met with absolute resistance by some, by many potentially, and others would applaud it. How does how do you do a plan in that kind of environment? Hmm. That's where leadership becomes everything. Do you think an age phase in uh, in the abstract? Do you think that that there's there's a lot of sense to that? Like that's a, something people should look at. Well, we have no choice. I think is unless you're willing to say we're going to stay in this lockdown, you know. And I'm trying as an epidemiologist to say I want the least number of people to be adversely affected by this virus. I want the most people to be able to get through this the next 16 or 18 months, whatever it might be, hoping to get to a vaccine where we did the most do not do harm kind of approach. And I think in that situation, yes, everything should be on the table. We have to have that discussion. Anyone who believes that we are not going to sustain any more virus casualties because we're locked down is wrong. Anyone who believes we can just let this go willy-nilly and transmit widely in the community without having tremendous implications for the number who die and the healthcare systems we all will bring down. Also, that's not a realistic view. So this middle point of threading the rope through the needle, opening schools, looking at younger people, um, how do we use people who've already been infected? When will we know if they've been infected, do they have immunity right now? How do we incorporate them back into society? You know what, I could only imagine what if I finally got this one day and I was now immune? I would not want to go through this. I don't want to feel it. But think if I could see my grandkids because they didn't have to worry if I was going to transmit to them or they transmit to me. Yeah, How do we because, incorporate right. recovered people back into society in a way that eliminates some of this? Do you, have you seen anybody with a plan for that? That's what we need right now. That's what we're trying to promote is looking at all these issues, putting them on the table. We won't get it right the first time. We will not get it right the second time. But we can keep working on it to sustain society, minimize transmission of this virus, and pray to God that we get an effective vaccine. One thing that I have seen people with a plan for is do a ton of tests. You've got everything from test everybody to test everybody every day, every time you go into the workplace. Uh, and people say, you know when we can reopen safely when we have a lot of tests? I'm not sure. You know, different people, their definition of a lot is different. Um, do you think that's right? Is there a, a threshold of tests that will be like, okay, now we can open? Well, first of all, we have to be practical. And what I mean by that is, is that we can't invent something that doesn't exist. Um, and we will not be able to sustain, even in this country, let alone a, on a global basis, uh, the kind of testing that people are promoting right now. You know, it's as if I came to you and said, I want a new 100-story building in downtown New York. And can you have it done by the end of the month? Okay, we just don't have the infrastructure. We don't have the capability to do that. So we have to be realistic. And to be realistic, testing is important, and we can sure do a lot better at testing, but we won't have that capacity in the short term to do what some people recommend. Um, and that's what we have to have. We have to have realistic recommendations. Remember, we're on virus time. We are not on human time. The next 12 to 16, 18 months, the virus will dictate this schedule, not us. 
And so what we can't get done in that time period is what we can't get done to try to stop or deal with this pandemic. And so I think that's an important issue. So yes, testing will play a role, but I do not believe under any circumstances we have this every day get tested before you go to work or before you go to school or even when you get up. That's not just not going to happen. That's a beam me up Scotty machine that just isn't going to happen. Do you think uh, there are any states where there's enough testing, enough whatever you think is important contact tracing to say, okay, I think you know, kindergartners or preschoolers can go to school because, as we know, Zoom school for three-year-olds, not, not, that, that, not that effective. I come back to the point over and over again, as long as we have objective criteria upon when to turn the system on or turn it off relative to protecting people from the virus, whether that means uh, physical distancing, whether it means being in public places, are only as good as how are we able to actually implement that program. And we have just demonstrated in the U.S. that the states are not capable at this point of implementing such a program uh, based on criteria. We just took criteria that had been established just weeks ago about reopening, and I don't know a single state that's actually met that criteria that went and reopened. Again, I'm not criticizing the governors for doing that. It's just pointing out that if it's arbitrary like that, then how will we know if we're able to turn something on, we can turn it off? And I think that's the big challenge we have today. Finally, how do you see, given what you know is happening, which is this patchwork situation, how do you see this pandemic ending in the U.S.? I mean, you also know vaccines are being worked on. What do you realistically, when you face what's happening, see what do you think is going to unfold over the next couple of years? You know, I don't know how it's going to unfold, with one exception, is we will get through this. We will get through this. And I think that's the point that we have to keep holding out hope for, that whether it's a vaccine, whether it's the fact that uh, so many uh, people get infected and develop durable immunity, uh, I don't know. But um, we will get through it, and I think that's the point we have to remember. And the question we're going to ask ourselves, as has happened every time in history when events like this have happened, people will go back and look at what we did or didn't do, and they will judge us for who we are as humans, for who we are as a population, as a race, Mm -hmm. and what kind of decisions did we make and how did we implement them. And so I just keep thinking about how will my grandchildren one day look at what people like myself and others did. That's the measure I keep coming back to. We'll get through it, but how we got through it will be everything. Dr. Michael Osterholm is director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. Thank you so, so much for your time. Thank you. Now, in our last few minutes, we're going to travel from Minnesota to New York for another look at the reality of this virus and some indications, as Osterholm said, of how history may judge us. My concern, of course, is that, you know, you have 30 million plus folks that have been newly unemployed uh, in just the uh, time span of weeks. Diana Hernandez is an assistant professor at the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University. And I think that people that were just really on the line 
may have a harder time and a longer time recovering, and that concerns me. Hernandez lives in the South Bronx, where she grew up. She studies how the places where you spend time impact your health. And she offers us a postcard from an area that's been one of the hot spots for the virus thus far and has been profoundly impacted on a number of levels. We know that poverty and work and wealth and all those things uh, have implications for health. And so, yes, I mean, I'm concerned about that as being a short-term and a long-term uh, issue, you know, to consider. Hernandez says she saw previews of the future back in March as the magnitude of the coronavirus crisis was just starting to become clear to Americans. So what I was noticing is that there were folks in my community that probably were, you know, like aware of the warnings and you know, the suggestions around preparation and, you know, getting enough food for two weeks and that kind of thing. But their economic situation kind of precluded uh, them taking heed, you know, and I saw that, you know, in the supermarkets. I also saw it in the dollar store uh, where a lot of people uh, do shop and they kind of get whatever basics they need for their homes. But people weren't you know, like the kinds of uh, experiences that were being depicted in the news, for instance, and other places where, you know, people had shopping carts that were like, you know, overflowing. It was a very different circumstance um, where I am. Monetary gaps have cascading effects on mental well-being, on preparedness, on health. And Hernandez, who lives near many New Yorkers who are struggling, but who works as a professor herself, she's pretty clear about the divide when it comes to resources. So I was able to get two weeks, you know, plus worth of food and, you know, like get whatever detergent, for instance, these kinds of like small things that I knew I would need to be able to shelter in place and not have to like necessarily go out again. Um, But what I noticed is that, you know, people weren't buying uh, very much and what they were buying was, you know, what they could afford. So at that point, I think that there was also uh, like a little bit of, you know, an understanding of maybe like anticipating for illness. So people were buying soups and they were buying, you know, non-perishable items, which makes a lot of sense uh, in this context. Um, you know, but also tends to be higher in sodium, for instance, and probably not as healthy as the perishable items. But of course, you know, if you're on a limited budget and you have to make decisions about what to buy, you know, a lot of times you can't afford uh, for food to go bad. And so, you know, that's another kind of consideration for why people might have been buying uh, the non-perishable goods that I that I at least saw. That bifurcation between the haves and the have-nots also played out in other ways. Take one well-meaning policy that has meant radically different things in leafy suburbs versus massive apartment blocks. In communities with, you know, that are much more densely populated, uh, being socially distant uh, and practicing social distancing um, is just, you know, less of a reality and much more of an aspiration. Uh, you know, that's what we're seeing. And take to the discussion of who is vulnerable. We're seeing people that have underlying conditions essentially perish and at disproportionate rates. 
uh, not because they're old, because we that's what we initially thought of as, as the vulnerability. And when we think about this from a global perspective, we are one of the unhealthiest kind of richest nations in the world. But it, our most vulnerable are people of color. They're African-American, they're Latino, they're low income, they're living in low income communities uh, that are not just, you know, those communities, it's not necessarily just a manifestation of income, it's resources. It's kind of really a dearth of opportunities for living healthily that dictate what people do, how they eat, how they move, what levels of stress they encounter in their everyday existence. She says how COVID-19 has manifested in the U.S., it sets us apart and not in a good way, which is a story that we've seen unfold before. If it's not this, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, Hurricane Katrina did the same thing. The 1995 heat wave in Chicago uh, did the same thing. You know, we we very kind of clearly can point to um, the populations that are again and again kind of most uh, devastatingly impacted by these circumstances, be they environmental and natural or man-made. Um, but, I, you know, I feel like it's not okay. Uh, and at some point we may have to just decide as a society that it isn't okay. Diana Hernandez is an assistant professor of sociomedical sciences at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. You can find more on her own experiences bridging two worlds at our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. From PRX and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.